It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, March 26th, 2022. I'm Jared Halper. NATO unites in an emergency summit. NATO has never never been more united than it is today. And Washington remembers the lives of two political institutions. You know, that is really one of the great American stories. Somebody who, you know, who came from the communist regime. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. President Biden and the heads of every other NATO country met this week for an emergency summit in Brussels as the Russian invasion of Ukraine entered its second month. Putin was banking on NATO being split. My early conversation with him in December and early January was clear to me he didn't think we could sustain this cohesion. NATO has never, never been more united than it is today. NATO allies have coordinated military assistance for Ukraine, a nation outside the alliance, in addition to bolstering defenses along NATO's eastern flank, like Poland, a country now staging thousands of U.S. troops. President Biden met with some of them Friday. You represent 1% of the American people. None of you have to be here. You all decided to be here for your country. Every one of you volunteered. Every single one of you stepped up. And the rest of the 99% of the rest of the country, including me, owes you. And owes you big. Kurt Volker was a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs during the George W. Bush administration, and he was the U.S. Ambassador to NATO in the final months of that administration and the early months of the Obama administration. He was the Trump administration's Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations from 2017 to 2019. I asked him about how the NATO alliance is holding up. There were other times, of course, when NATO was quite unified, especially at the founding. Um, and at 9-11, you know, when we were attacked, mm-hmm. it was the only time Article 5 has been invoked. But there is a very, very high degree of NATO unity right now, a lot of solidarity, support for Ukraine, opposition to Russia. Uh, so that is that is true. Do you think President Putin underestimated that that unity, that that response? I think so. Uh, I think he made a lot of miscalculations, most important of, of which was to underestimate the quality of the Ukrainian military and overestimate the capacity of his own. Uh, so they have done a terrible job in trying to, to fight this war. And then, yes, I think he also underestimated the degree to which the allies would come together in opposition to Russia, particularly when it comes to sanctions. I don't, I don't think that he thought that the Germans or others would go along with banning Russian banks from the SWIFT transfer system, stopping Nord Stream 2. Uh, I think he thought that that would not happen. So again, another miscalculation. What, what do you think was the reason for that miscalculation? Was it because of a fairly light response, I guess, comparatively when, when the annexation of Crimea occurred in 2014? Um, and I guess 
to follow up on that, why is this different? I mean, why did you see the response from Germany and others uh, as strong as we have over the last uh, few weeks here? Yeah, well, I think, first off, why uh, the miscalculation? I think several factors. The, what you said, uh, Russia invaded U- uh, Ukraine in 2014. Not much happened. They invaded Georgia in 2008. Not much happened. Uh, they saw our catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan. They didn't think that we really had the stomach to exercise force. And there was great uh, disunity among NATO over that. Disunity among other things as well, like defense spending. Uh, So I just think he thought that we were weak and divided. And then I think he spent two years isolated during the pandemic and probably not getting the best information and not the best intelligence, not the best judgment about what things really look like in the world. So that's one side. On to your question about, well, why did the West react differently? Uh, As you remember, the uh, invasion of Crimea and taking that over was was really almost nonviolent. They they did it surreptitiously with these uh, unmarked soldiers, um, intelligence officers. They um, did it fairly quickly. There was not a lot of bloodshed at all. So there was it happened fast, and there was little to react to until it was all over. Uh, when they launched the invasion in eastern Ukraine uh, after Crimea. Uh, it was uh, bloodier. The Ukrainians did fight back, but they fought to a standstill. They fought to a ceasefire line pretty quickly. Um, so back when they launched the invasion uh, of eastern Ukraine after Crimea, uh, there was fighting back from the Ukrainian side. Uh, they did fight uh, to a standstill, more or less, and Western countries jumped in to call for a ceasefire. It didn't threaten the entire country. It didn't get close to Kiev. There were not massive civilian casualties. Uh, so uh, it didn't prompt quite the same outrage. Uh, but there was a Western reaction to try to stop the fighting. Here, what, what Russia has done is really quite remarkable. Um, they have gone in multiple directions into the country. They have targeted the cities and civilians deliberately. They've created thousands of deaths, three million displaced persons, over 10 million displaced within the country. Uh, it is really uh, sh- shocking and stunning what we're seeing. And I think that that does account for why the Western reaction is so much stronger. I know you obviously were, were a special representative uh, to Ukraine during uh, part of the Trump administration. What would be your advice right now to President Zelensky is these, I mean, are, are they peace negotiations, sort of what's happening between the governments uh, in, in Kiev and in Moscow? Uh, No, they're not. This is the Russians uh, using negotiations for theater. Uh, They have no intention of actually ending the war at this time. I think Putin doesn't have any way out other than to strive for a military victory. Um, And he's making demands of Ukraine recognizing Russia's uh, annexation of Crimea, recognizing these two provinces in the east as, as if they're independent states. Uh, I don't think the Ukrainians should be doing anything like that. Uh, Russia is the aggressor here, and they can't be rewarded for their aggression. Uh, so Zelensky should keep fighting, keep demanding as much support as he can from the West, and outline this as he is doing, with the stakes being what they are, that if Russia succeeds in you know, attacking Ukraine, overthrowing its government, seizing territory, um, this is a threat to, not just to Ukraine, but to all of Europe and to European security structures. Uh, we all have a stake in seeing that Putin is stopped in Ukraine. 
so I think he should uh, keep making that case as he's doing, keep fighting, and we should be giving him all of the support that we possibly can. Well, I know you have had the view, um, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that there should be some sort of no-fly zone. Is that sort of still your view? Yeah. I, I think mean, that, that, that's yeah, a minority we were, view, right? I mean, do you, it is a minority share, view. do you share those concerns? That I've heard it from Democrats and Republicans that that obviously puts U.S. fighter jets in direct conflict with Russian fighter jets, and the potential of escalation is enormous. Yeah, it has that potential. Let's be fair. Uh, There is a risk of direct contact between uh, Western and Russian forces, and it could escalate. That is that's all true. But we have to take into several take into account several other things as we think about this. One of them is that Putin is losing the war on the ground. He doesn't want to draw the West into this fight. So he has an incentive to avoid that direct contact, just like we do. Uh, He also um, is targeting civilians, leveling cities, driving people out, and there is no safe passage for these people. So just from a humanitarian point of view, there is a reason to try to create some, some top cover for them, some safe passage. And then thirdly, we can think in terms of what a limited no-fly zone would be. Uh, We're used to thinking comprehensively, uh, like what we did in Iraq, take out all of the ground-to-air equipment, cover an entire area. Uh, We could think in more limited terms. We could think about humanitarian purposes. We could be telling the Russians we're not going to fire on anything unless fired upon, and then we would take it out, but we're not going to start off from an assumption that we're going to attack your forces. Uh, Same, we want to escort planes out of this designated area, not the whole country, but maybe just the western part. And if they fly in, we'll escort them out. And only if you they're not willing to leave or they're firing upon civilians from there would we actually engage. So I think there are ways to draw limits around this that minimize that risk. That is still very real. And even in a case where there might be an exchange of fire between Western and Russian aircraft, uh, war ground systems, it doesn't necessarily mean that it escalates to nuclear exchange in World War III. Uh, again, the Russians have an incentive to avoid that just as much as we do. A decision like that would have to be unanimous among the entire NATO bloc, right? Yeah. Any, de- any decision made by NATO is, by definition, a decision made by unanimity, by consensus. So it would take everyone to agree if it was done as a NATO operation. It is possible to do it as a coalition of the willing as well at the invitation of the Ukrainians. So a smaller number of countries could choose to do it. Um, but right now, as you said, you, you, you're hearing from both sides of the aisle in the United States and, and also you hear it at NATO as well. There's not a lot of support for this idea now. Uh, we'll see what happens as Putin continues to produce more and more casualties. It sounds to me like you think the humanitarian catastrophe could start to, to shift that thinking. That it would think, be a hum- in other has, words, it would be a humanitarian yeah. exercise, not necessarily exactly. sort of a military exercise. Correct. It's using a military instrument to create yeah. a safe space for uh, humanitarian purposes. Um, I think that what we've seen over the course of this war uh, has been people sliding into uh, more and more engagement compared to where they started. Uh, we said early on, we're not going to sanction Nord Stream 2. And then we did. We said that we're not going to ban Russia from the SWIFT financial transfer system, and then we did. We said we're not going to stop imports of Russian oil, and then we did. 
we said we're not going to give them stinger missiles, and then we did. Now we're saying we're not going to allow the poles to, to give them the MiG-29s, or that the, the poles can do it, but we're not going to fill behind. Uh, I would not be surprised to see that issue come back again. And so I would just st- stop saying what we're not going to do, keep the idea of a no-fly zone on the table, and if we get to the point where we do feel that there are fewer options for protecting civilians, we may come back to implementing that. And if we don't need to, okay, then let's let's hope that the civilians are safe. Should Ukraine, Georgia, some of these other former Soviet satellites be members of NATO? Yeah, I think we have to start imagining what the end of the war looks like. Uh, Russia can't win. They, they can't possibly take all of Ukrainian territory and hold it. There'll be internal insurgencies. They'll be fighting in the cities. The Russian forces, have, estimates are they've lost a tenth of the fighting force and, and maybe a quarter of personnel knocked out of commission because of, of injuries as well. They're not going to win here. Uh, Ukraine will survive, although in a, in a really brutalized mm-hmm. situation. So what does the world start to look like? I don't see how Putin survives this. I think that gives the Russian people a chance then to uh, establish a more normal country yet again. Uh, some change of regime there would, would ultimately be likely. Uh, if that happens, we have to think, what do we do to make sure that other states in Europe that are not members of NATO and the EU are not attacked in the future? How do we, pre- how do we prevent that? How do we prevent what just happened to Ukraine? From happening again. So we should be thinking about NATO, we should be thinking about the European Union. And if there's not a comfort with that, let's think about alternative security arrangements that would provide guarantees, uh, something that Zelensky has started talking about. Uh, But we have to start imagining a a world post-war in which what just happened can't happen again. Let me finish with this, because obviously we talked about your role in the Trump administration. Do you see a difference, any, any sort of daylight between what the, the policy regarding Ukraine was during the Trump administration was and how it is now with the Biden administration? Obviously, you have an exterior view, an outside view here of the Biden administration. Sure. Well, I'd say that what's happened is, is more continuity than anything. We, um, during the Obama administration, they had banned uh, arms, uh, lethal mm-hmm. arms transfer to Ukraine. And so we reversed that and we were we got them the Javelin missiles for the first time. We got them some other lethal systems, increased the level of security assistance, put in place more sanctions against Russia, uh, put in place this permanent non-recognition of Russia's claimed annexation of Crimea. So a lot of steps there that we escalated during the Trump administration to provide more support for Ukraine. That continued in the first year of the Biden administration. And then now that the war has broken out, it has increased. So there's been a tremendous increase now in the level of security assistance going to Ukraine compared to where we were. The first year of the Biden administration is $450 million, the same as the last year of the Trump administration. But now I think we're at the level of, uh, I think, close to $2 billion uh, that we are now giving them in military supplies so that they can resupply and keep fighting the war. Let me finish with this, because you, you had a lot of interaction with President Zelensky, right? Yeah. yeah. You surprised by the way that he's handled this? I mean, he's become quite the, the, quite the figure. Yeah, he has. And I'm not surprised at all. Uh, he struggled a bit during his first two years as president in terms of governance, getting legislation through the parliament and implementing reforms and uh, his popularity sagged. But in terms of who he is as a person, and that's what you're seeing in his performances today, he's 
a person of integrity. He cares about his country. He came to, to politics as an outsider who really just wanted to fix things, was maybe a bit naive about how easy it would be to do that. But now at a moment when the country needs a leader who has courage, integrity, is willing to say what needs to be said and communicate well, he's really ideally suited for the job. It's hard to, to I, I think, envision Western leaders in that position. Um, yeah, let's hope that I, let's I, hope we never have one. Right, but I mean, it's, it's just striking to see like a president, you know, wearing wearing the the, the tactical t shirt, the yeah. you know, outside. You can hear air raid sirens. It's been remarkable, yeah. and so I was curious, sort of, what your experience with with him was like. And he's a sincere person, and he sincerely mm-hmm. cares about saving his country. Ambassador Volker, appreciate the time. Uh, be well. We'll continue to have uh, have these chats as uh, this uh, situation uh, develops. Great. Thank you so much. Flags have been flying at half-staff since our last episode of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. We learned late last week of the death of Alaska Congressman Don Young, the dean of the House. He had served here in Congress for nearly 50 years, first elected in a special election in 1973. The people of Alaska sent the Republican back to D.C. 24 more times. He was 88 years old and died traveling back to Alaska. This week, another longtime public servant and trailblazer died, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Her family says cancer was the cause of death. She was 84. In 1997, she became the first woman to serve as Secretary of State. At the time, it made her the highest-ranking woman in the history of the U.S. government. Like Young, praise and kind words have come from across the political spectrum and from people with sharp policy disagreements. My colleague on Capitol Hill, congressional correspondent Chad Pergram, covered both of these Washington institutions. I invited him to share some stories and tell some of my own. I think everybody who's covered Washington uh, over the last almost 50 years probably has a Don Young story. What's yours? Well, a couple things I remember here, you know, a few years ago, he got into some legal trouble. He was never prosecuted, but uh, some questions arose about, uh, you know, earmarks. Uh, He is well known for the so-called bridge to nowhere. Mm -hmm. This was a bridge that was built to a rural community in Alaska, Uh, served not many people, frankly. But in Alaska, you need those things. And if you're the congressman and the senior congressman and you chair the transportation committee, guess what? You're going to bring home the bacon. So Don Young was always very pro earmark, but this became the poster child, which is why until recently, uh, they mostly got rid of earmarks, you know, uh, you know, designating a specific amount of money for a specific project in a specific state or district, such as a bridge. And so that all goes back to Don Young. And, and he was very gruff about it. Frankly, he didn't want to ask, answer questions about that investigation. Uh, this is when you know there was a lot of turmoil in Alaska politics. You had Sarah Palin, who had been nominated to be the vice presidential uh, candidate for John McCain when he was running for president. You had Ted Stevens, the senator from Alaska, who was under federal investigation. I mean, and then you had this issue with Don Young. Uh, the the two things I remember about Don Young, I never thought I would say 
this phrase on the air, but famously during a hearing back in the early 1990s when he had some officials uh, before his committee to make his point, he was holding in his hand the pubic bone of a walrus, and he clasped it into his hands and beat it on the dais to make his point. Uh, the other thing that I remember is that this is before John Boehner was the Speaker of the House. He supposedly pulled out a short uh, blade knife and held it to the throat of the future speaker inside the House chamber. Boehner talked about thing, that in his book, right? Yes. The yeah. other thing that people remember about Don Young is that he was the congressional timekeeper. He would sit in the back of the chamber almost always in the same seat. You don't really have assigned seats in the House of Representatives, but you have people who tend to sit in the same area. There's a place called the Pennsylvania Corner where a lot of the Pennsylvania members sit. There's a place where a lot of the Congressional Black Caucus members sit. So Don Young would sit over to the left of the speaker's dais. And if the vote started to run a little bit long, you would just hear him yell and come on, move it along. Let's vote. Let's get out of here. You know, it was like a heckler at a baseball game or something, you know, yelling at the umpire. Come on, Blue. You know, that was low. You know, it, it was it was amazing. Uh, to have that with Don Young. The other thing I remember about Don Young, and, and again, this is, uh, you know, striking uh, uh, just the, the memories and, and, and knowing him. I, I was a little surprised that they were would actually have him lie in state at the Capitol. Uh, I mean, that's not to undercut Don Young in any way, but just the idea that we've had so many of those types of ceremonies here. He's going to lie in state in Statuary Hall of the Capitol, not in the Capitol Rotunda, but in Statuary Hall here. He the was old a house very chamber. yes, yes, by the, the old house chamber. He was a close friend of Nancy Pelosi, mm -hmm. the Speaker of the House. They had utmost respect for one another. And here's the story that a lot of people don't know about Don Young about how he got to Congress. Nineteen seventy three, it's a special election. And he had been the mayor of Fort Yukon in Alaska. He had been a riverboat captain, a tugboat captain, a trapper got into politics, was the mayor of Fort Yukon. So Hale Boggs was the majority leader. And there was a new congressman from Alaska by the name of Nick Begich. And this plane, we believe, crashed somewhere in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say we believe is because to this day, plane nor bodies have never been found. Now, this, this was in was, a really remote part of Alaska. Yes. This is yeah. the sitting this is the sitting House majority leader. So this would be like Steny Hoyer dying. Mm -hmm. Hale Boggs, who, by the way, is the father of Cokie Roberts, the mm -hmm. late journalist. And Nick Begich, who was the congressman, who is the father of the future senator who defeated Ted Stevens, Mark Begich. Mm -hmm. So this is just before the election. They're campaigning, you know, doing that sort of thing. Plane crashes. Begich, the older Begich, is on the ballot and actually wins, but obviously can't take office again because he's dead. Don Young flips the seat from Democrat to Republican in a special election in 1973, and he's never left until now. And at 24 terms later, uh, continued to be reelected. I'll share, Chad, my one Don Young story, um, because his office uh, in the Capitol complex, oh, I think, yes. was I know as what famous as maybe he was. <laughs> so he has uh, an office, very large office. He's the dean of the house. He had a very big office. It was It was larger than most, right? And he was, as you pointed out in his previous life, an avid uh, outdoorsman, uh, a hunter. And every, I don't know if it's every, but every species of animal he killed as a hunter in Alaska was taxidermied on display somewhere in his office. Um, it, it, it was, was really almost a like a museum. It was like yeah. a museum of, of Alaska wildlife, right? Um, 
And there was a news conference in his office with the uh, entire uh, Alaska delegation. So him and it was Senators uh, Murkowski and, and, and Sullivan. And the aides are trying to arrange the podium in a way where like antlers or something won't appear to come out of a lawmaker's head in the background. This and was after the earthquake in Alaska. It was after, that's right. It was yes. after an earthquake. And I think you may have been in there and just watching them sort of have to move all of these these displays, these animals around so that, you know, senators and, and the uh, dean of the house didn't have antlers coming out of their head was uh, something that I wonder if aides were, were used to doing that. That was my one Don Young story I thought I would share. Everybody has one. If you're here for 49 <laughs> years like Don Young was, somebody's going to have a Don Young story. Let's talk about another institution in Washington, um, as we learned this week, the death of uh, Madeleine Albright, who was uh, groundbreaking. She, she first woman uh, secretary of state at the time, the highest ranking woman in the history of the U.S. government, uh, came to the United States as a political refugee from the former Czechoslovakia with her family, rises the, the diplomatic ranks, and like Don Young, uh, I have seen nothing but admiration from even those who did not agree with her from a policy perspective. You know, that is really one of the great American stories. Somebody who, you know, who came from the communist regime, Czechoslovakia, it was independent at the time, you know, after the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire fell and, you know, immigrated here, came right through Ellis Island in 1948. And even though she was raising a family, she started to go to school. You know, taking classes in foreign affairs and foreign policy at Columbia, it was remarkable. And that's how she got to know Bignev Brzezinski, who later mm -hmm. was President Carter's national security advisor and also the father of Mika Brzezinski on, on MSNBC. And she rose through the ranks working, uh, you know, with the State Department and Ed Muskie and a few others, you know, and then eventually was the NSC liaison to Congress. Now, this was a woman in the 1970s under the Carter administration. And, you know, even today, there's not a lot of federal agencies that have a female liaison to Capitol Hill. And you did in the 70s. That tells you how groundbreaking it was. And, and the thing I always remember about uh, Madeleine Albright here is that over the years, both here on Capitol Hill, in the foreign policy and the diplomatic community, but in Washington at large, how many women who I've been in a conversation with have said she inspired me? where I went to hear her speak somewhere and she took the time to give me some good counsel or advice or she really, you know, bucked me up and helped me get this job or this internship or this, you know, dissertation, got me into grad school. So, you know, the stories are legion like that. And there's not many people that I have heard who have so many non-obvious connections just in passing who tell me that Madeleine Albright somehow touched them. And that's something I've known for years. In fact, it was funny. Uh, just uh, late last year, there was a, a colleague of, of uh, ours here on Capitol Hill, works with another news organization, who wanted to get a hold of her for an interview and gave her Albright's telephone number. And she had called several times and talked to somebody, but they had never done the interview. And we didn't know, at least I didn't know, that she was sick. And she never got the interview, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, that's a testament to Madeleine Albright, uh, you know, these stories of these uh, th these women aides on Capitol Hill and others in the diplomatic community, all inspired or helped by Madeleine Albright.
My my Madeline Albright story is not as I guess humorous as my Don Young one, but I was in no an animals, uh, menageries on the wall in her office. <laughs> I was I in an elevator with her once uh, here in on the Capitol. Sometimes you know former diplomats or you know we, we get these types of DC secretaries of state, quite sure, often cabinet here. officials. Sure. We had hopped. Uh, she had hopped in an elevator that I was in, and you know she is not. She was not a a big woman, right? She was small in stature, but you could just tell even in that short. Uh, time because I did not cover her in the Clinton administration, just sort of the stature that, that she had. I mean, people, it was almost like a parting of crowds as she sort of made her way through the hallways here as people sort of just admired from afar. And she was nice enough to, you know, smile and wave at everybody. But you got a sense just in that brief interaction, uh, the, the impact that she had here uh, in Washington and on the Hill. Absolutely. She will be missed. Let's finish, Chad, uh, on policy, because I know you've done, listen, a lot of the Capitol Hill this week was overshadowed by the Supreme Court hearings. That's always the case when we have a nominee to the high bench. But you have done some reporting as well on another issue that is going to come to a head, we think, over the next couple of weeks, and that is COVID money. This funding that was taken out, what, about $16 billion that was taken out of the appropriations bill uh, that that passed uh, earlier this month. Um, the White House insists this money has to be funded, we, that there is going to not be enough money to continue free testing, to continue free uh, vaccination programs. Where is this at? Is there an appetite to get? I mean, if, if they do it sort of through regular order, that's going to need 60 votes, right? That's right. Uh, in the Senate, 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. That's why they thought it was going to be fairly easy to tuck it into this big omnibus spending bill You know, a few weeks ago to fund the government through the end of, of September. Uh, But, uh, you know, there's been some criticism that COVID money has not all gone to health. There have been some criticisms that there's been abuse and waste and fraud. In fact, the the COVID uh, pandemic uh, committee in the House of Representatives is is looking directly into some of this right now. Uh, You've had Republican members, and I asked both the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and the Minority Leader Mitch McConnell about this. Uh, McConnell and Republicans like Mitt Romney say we'd like to reprogram some of the existing money. You know, they've spent $4.6, $4.7 trillion on COVID, and about 90, 91% of that has been spent, but that's still a lot of money that hasn't been mm-hmm. spent. So maybe they could retool some of this there. So much of that money, though, went to businesses and to buck up the economy and individuals and things like that. There was a real delineation between that money and money that actually went with health. And I, and I don't think that during the time of the pandemic here, that Congress did a very good job describing that, you know, there, there's two different needs here. There's the economic need, there's the personal need, and then there's the health need. And initially, they were just approving money for everything, which maybe was needed, certainly a crisis of this magnitude. But that's when they come back and say, wait a minute, hat in hand, we're, we're very concerned here. Now, as you say, what does this mean? Well, if there's another wave, and we've seen higher numbers in the United Kingdom, we've seen higher numbers in China, very high numbers, uh, to the point that they're doing lockdowns and things again, that that wave, this BA2 variant, you know, really starts to get a foothold in the United States. Uh, okay, maybe. So what do you need? Well, you need an, a fourth booster. There's been talk about that. They say they don't have money for people uh, 65 and older for that to be free. You know, you could show up at any pharmacy, any doctor's office, you know, on the street, you know, there were street corner clinics, you know, here at mm-hmm. the Capitol, you can get stuff. Same type of deal. It was all free, testing the same thing. Well, even if BA2 starts to surge, you have people who are going to weddings, conferences now, flying, uh, staying at resorts, taking their kids to summer camp. Well, what do you need? A negative COVID test. 
well, that's not going to be free anymore unless they mm -hmm. approve this money. So there seems to be an agreement to do something. How quickly they can do it, we don't know. And Dr. Fauci and Jeffrey Zients, especially Fauci, had said this past week uh, in a forum with The Washington Post that it's just extraordinary to think that they didn't approve this considering what we've been through. And that's almost verbatim what he said. Uh, but that will be if you have to pay for your own COVID test to get into all these things to live life somewhat normally again, that is essentially a tax. And it comes during a period when gas prices are higher, food prices are higher, inflation is surging. That's a problem. So, you know, everybody's going to pay for this money because it's, you know, money off the federal federal books here to start with. But the question is, how do they do it? And And the reason, one of the reasons why the Republicans want to take this existing money is just not because it might be more fiscally sound, but because also it takes away from some of the democratic priorities, the social spending types of things that they approved in their big uh, partisan bill, $1.9 trillion that they passed a year ago this month. This is a way to sort of undercut that policy uh, of the left by Republicans in Congress, Jared. Well, we'll leave it there this week because it sounds like that's where we're going to pick it up next week and in the weeks to come. Chad, I appreciate, as always, your uh, your institutional knowledge here. I know it doesn't go back as, as deep as uh, as the the late uh, Congressman Young's, but it's, it's uh, valuable nonetheless. And I appreciate you sharing that with us again this week. And I have no trophies with antlers hanging on my wall. If there's ever a press conference at my house, you won't have to worry about moving all those things around you. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, the job interview is over for Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Shannon Bream breaks down those hearings and looks at what kind of justice could be joining the high court. And Jessica Rosenthal looks at the Senate race in Missouri, a key battleground with a contentious primary. Until then, I'm Jared Halpern. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.